All right, let's read scripture now from both the Old Testament and the New. This first from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 to 8. A voice says, cry, and I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now this is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 25. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the reading of the Lord. Thank you, Matt. Well, we continue our new sermon series on the epistle of 1 Peter. We're calling this Suffering and Salvation in the Exile, discussing how we live as strangers and aliens in a different and ever-changing land. By examining Peter's context largely with, as we talked about last week, a Gentile audience spread across modern-day Turkey uh, who are about to experience great trials and difficulties in their lives, uh, we too can see ourselves in Peter's letter. We, too, are called to endure. And so last week, uh, Peter, uh, like, like Paul in a lot of Paul's letters, begins by reminding them who they are as people of God redeemed by the Lord. They are elect exiles, called by the triune God, born to a living hope, receiving the reward that they have in salvation that is prepared to them by Jesus Christ, by the prophets of God that were not just preaching to the Jews, but as we talked about last week, to the Gentiles as well. So Peter today is expressing what it means now to live out this reality of who they are. So like very much indicative imperative, right? This is who you are now. How shall you live now that you are someone completely different? called by God as an elect exile. That, that is our focus here today. How shall we live? But uh, first, uh, let's pray together before we go to the preaching of God's word. 
Father, make us a holy people. Let us center it on who you are and who we are in light of you, in all of your name, and the new names that you have given us through Christ. Holy Spirit, speak to us now powerfully. Cut through our hard hearts. Lord, reach our minds, our souls, our strengths to love you and to love neighbor and to make disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I start just by asking you a question of, have you ever been in an unwinnable situation? In movies, there is a name for such unwinnable situations. Uh, This might make me a nerd in front of all of you, but it's called the Kobayashi Maru. Uh, For those of you who are familiar with the Star Trek, some of you are nodding with me. Thank you for for not making me feel alone. All right, all right. Right. For those of you familiar with the Star Trek series, you know what this is. It's where leaders are given the impossible task on board Star Command, a scenario that's completely unfair. They are being attacked by enemies while having to rescue people that are about to be destroyed, but both of these tasks are impossible. The rules are completely rigged. The goal of the Kobayashi Maru is not to beat the exercise. The goal of the Kobayashi Maru is designed to test their mettle to humble them, to demonstrate that, to them that they cannot do the task that is being performed. That is, as those of you who are familiar with the Star Trek series may be aware, a young Captain Kirk beat the Kobayashi Maru for the very first time. Now, how did he do it? Well, he changed the conditions of the test to make the unwinnable situation winnable. By changing the parameters of the test to allow for the task to be completed, Captain Kirk saw beyond hopelessness and looked to the reality in which the task was possible. Now, maybe that example is too sci-fi for you, but you get my point. When we get to many situations in life like this, a, a situation where you're given a task, an opponent, an assignment, and your immediate reaction to that goal is, nope, I can't do that. That's not happening. That's simply not what I'm capable of. You wonder why in the world someone thought of you as being able to accomplish that task. You you get offended that someone would even ask you to do it, and you become hardened in your resolve that you would never see yourself doing this ever again, or even attempting it because of how embarrassed it made you feel. But then someone, something, changes your entire perspective on the exercise, the test, the goal. And suddenly, the the task doesn't feel so impossible. Suddenly, that which seems impossible comes alive. This passage today is one of those passages that can seem like God is asking us to do something that seems impossible. It seems like the Kobayashi Maru. Be holy as I am holy. Really? Do you understand your creation? Do you get the difficulty of this task, the the impossibility of what it means to live for us in a way that that Peter is calling these exiles to live? And so we read passages like 1 Peter 1, 13 to 25, sort of just shrug our shoulders and say, well, can't do that. What's next? Maybe I should skip to a more practical book of the Bible. This is all theory not a way that real Christians can live. Be holy as I am holy. Get real, God. Putting our faith and hope as God the Father, purifying our souls 
by our obedience to the truth, love one another with a pure heart? To quote Dr. Malcolm Foley, love in this economy? Are you kidding me? In this exile? When we're facing all these kinds of horrors on every side? These tasks here, given by Peter, presents itself as a litmus test of how we understood who we are as elect exiles, what it means to be called by God. A casual reading of seeing this as impossible, skip this section, will demonstrate that we've missed the point of Peter's exhortation from last week. And so we are going to redefine the task. We are going to change conditions. We are going to be Captain Kirk in such a way that changes our perspective, our attitude, and yes, our Holy Spirit-fueled effort in fulfilling all that we see in these verses here of what it means to be holy as God is holy. So four things. To be holy as God is holy is one, to be a child. Two, to know the cost. Three, to look to Christ. And four, to love the church. So let's start off by talking about how to be holy is to be a child. Specifically, a child of God. Peter starts off by telling the elect exiles to prepare their minds for action. This literal translation of preparing your minds for action here is something akin to girding up your loins. It's a battle-ready term. It's a way of, of getting yourself ready and engaged for the war that's ahead. As, so he's, he's telling them, prepare your minds for battle, like the old G.I. Joe cartoon, right? Knowing is half the battle. And Peter is calling for the people to set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us when Christ is revealed once again in glory. Now, this is the first of the impossible tasks of what it means to be holy. How, how can the Christians set their hope fully when other competing hopes are in our way? Maybe it's the hope of our life goals, our bucket list. Maybe it's the hope of what we long for, for our families. Maybe it's the hope or aspirations of what we want to accomplish or the money that we wish to make or the things that we wish to buy or the political leader that we want to make decisions can God truly expect us to fully set aside all of those things just to be in anticipation for the coming of Jesus Christ? Yes. Yes, he can. How? This seems impossible for us. So Peter gives us the remedy. He says this, as obedient children of God, you see, given a new name by being adopted into the family of God, we are called to not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. Now, he was speaking to a Gentile community here of their former way of life and paganism, but this applies to us too. They, we are to throw away the idolatries that plagued our former lives. Peter roots what the call to holiness means about placing our hope fully in our identity as the new family of God. You are a child of God. Again, on the surface level, Peter is making a claim to holiness that seems an impossibility. He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, for be holy, for I am holy. And if you're knowledgeable on scripture, you're kind of looking at Peter and you're going, really, Peter? You're the guy that's saying this? 
Don't you see the hypocrisy of this statement? Aren't, aren't you the guy that denied Jesus three times? Aren't you the guy that gets chewed out by Paul for hating on the Gentiles? Aren't you the guy that has pretty much demonstrated the exact opposite of what you're calling us to do? What is the meaning of this, man? And you'd be exactly right to assume all of those things. The impossibility of the task, the deep hypocrisy presented by the writer, the fatalism that can lead so many Christians to read this in despair, you'd be right if the intention of being holy meant that the onus was upon you to accomplish it, to earn your way into the family, to earn your way into adoption. That being holy meant having this view that, oh sure, God might justify you, he might declare you not guilty, but you need to clean the stain of yourself in full purity on your own. Yes, if that's your working assumption, then yes, these verses are impossible. You shouldn't even try. But Peter isn't talking about holiness this way, as though God is comparing himself to us and then blaming us for not being like him. No, when Peter is writing from Leviticus 21.8, be holy for I am holy, God is telling us that our holiness is not self-derived apart from God's good graces. It derives from the character of God that has united us into his family. In other words, the calling of being into a family means that your status is now completely changed. You cannot be anything else but a part of that family. It is yours. Be holy as I am holy isn't earning your way into adoption. It's being who you already are. Do you know what it looks like to trying to see yourself as holy apart from being a child of God? Um, it's like trying to live out a futile mission of something that has already been defeated. Perhaps um, history can teach us a lesson here. Uh, in 1939, a young 18-year-old soldier by the name of Hiro Onada, I think I put his picture up there, Yep, it's, no, not in there? Okay, that's fine. Yeah, we can get that up there. Uh, by the name of Hiro Anada, enlisted in the Japanese Army in Infantry during World War II. After ser several years of service as an intelligence officer, he was sent to the Lubang Island on the Philippines, ordered to destroy his enemies and under no circumstances surrender or take his own life. <laughs> in other words, his orders were to repel the forces or die trying. Now, after U.S. and Philippine forces took the island in February of 1945, Onada hid in the jungle and vowed with him and three other men to remain on the mission. They lived in the mountains. They fought with local police. They engaged in guerrilla warfare and believed that they were being faithful to the mission that they had been called to do. For months, this continued. Uh, but there was only one problem with this whole arrangement. And some of you history buffs can guess what that arrangement is. On September 2nd, 1945, Japan surrendered after Oppenheimer's bomb landed on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Hiro Onada's mission was over. The identity of him as a combat soldier fighting the war was done. He was now called to something different. So leaflets dropped from the sky onto Lubang Island to convince Japanese troops to surrender. But Hiro Anada refused to accept this new identity. He thought the leaflets were propaganda. And so him and three other soldiers kept on fighting World War II. 
after World War II had concluded. Then there was only two soldiers beside Hiro, and then one soldier beside Hiro, and then all of a sudden it was just Onada. For 29 additional years, Hiro Onada kept on fighting World War II after the war had ended. He finally relented in the 70s. You know, we look at that and go, how could someone try to strive to fight a war that had already been finished? Many of us can't believe the fact, maybe, that God has sent his letter to you saying that you are his children, that you are holy, that he's called you to a new identity. God has said the war is over, Satan has been defeated, and yet so many of us are refusing to believe it like hero. We resist. We hold out as long as we can because we can't believe the idea that the war we've been constantly fighting has been already won by the Father who calls us his children and says to us, you are holy because I am holy. So we try to win the unwinnable war all by ourselves. Many of us might have been doing this for decades. Consider the alternative. As obedient children, it means that we are brothers and sisters in Christ who has made us holy to God the Father. To know that this transformation is happening in us so we should live in knowing that the war is done and that all we need to do is return home. In the Reformed faith, we call this doctrine union with Christ. And the idea that because we have died with Christ, we are also now raised up in him. That when we look in the mirror of salvation, though you might see a messed up, dirty sinner, impossible to be clean, God the Father looks at you and sees that you are united to the righteousness of God and that you have been made clean. This definitive sanctification was accomplished on the cross, this moment where God once and for all made you holy in the power of Jesus. This is what you are united to. But with definitive sanctification comes another side of that coin. And that is this term that we call progressive sanctification. See, yes, you have been made holy in Christ on the cross, but you are also progressively being made holy every single day. That you have a shelter in Christ, and Christ is building you up into the new creation that you already are. So, Peter in these commandments, which would seem impossible for us, says that in Christ all things are possible, even the holiness that seems so far out of your grasp. Even in those horrible sins that pop up again and again and again in your life. Even in your idolatries, your former ignorance that would prevent you from setting your hope fully on the grace of Jesus. All things are possible because Jesus has done it. Be holy for I am holy is not there to make you feel small and insignificant and in despair. Be holy, for I am holy, is designed to bring about encouragement to you that God himself, in bringing you to salvation in his name, has called you his child. That's what leads us to our second point, that to be holy is to know the cost. Verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear in the time of the exile. Now, when we think of father as judge, perhaps you no longer start to feel like a child of God. 
But when you hear this language, maybe you start to feel like a defendant in a courtroom. Uh, maybe you believe the fear in verse 17 is the fear of being rooted out. Your worst sins in public for everyone to see. You being attacked and assailed from every side. Maybe you believe that conducting yourselves with fear is living in this constant state of worry and trepidation as though God is standing right behind your shoulder waiting to whack you over the head when you mess up. But knowing the cost of Christ's precious blood produces a different kind of fear than perhaps the fear that we're imagining Scripture is speaking of. As I've said several times in sermons before, when the Bible speaks of the fear of the Lord, it is a fear of reverence. It is a fear of awe. It's the good kind of trembling, the kind of trembling when you are excited for what's to come. It's a fear of wonder and majesty of the work of God in your life. So, so Peter qualifies this fear by pointing us to the reality of Christ's precious blood, to know the cost more valuable than anything in the world, more lasting than any heirloom, any energy source, anything we could possibly know. This has ransomed you from the Father. Instead of coming down as a judge of wrath, coming down as a judge to proclaim that you are just and justified, that you are sanctified. When you realize the cost of what was paid on your behalf, the call to be holy you see, is not a call to feel guilty. The call to be holy is to place on how the righteous judge has ruled you righteous. The call to holy ultimately is look outside of your own sense of holiness to consider the cost. Perhaps this perspective can change how you think about obedience in the Christian life. You see, my guess is that you're probably thinking about obedience as one of two people. Here's the first person you might be. Uh, you might believe that holiness depends on how moral you think you are as a person. Uh, this is great if you're a really good rule keeper. If you're a good person with tasks, you have spreadsheets on your spreadsheets, you will find yourself thinking that being holy means believing in yourself to do these things well. So you will try and pursue the perfected nature of never trying to sin, always keeping your patterns up. And maybe the worst part about this is that you believe that you're being successful in accomplishing your own holiness. After all, people will affirm, look how diligent you are. Look how steadfast you are to maintain these rhythms. But, but then, of course, what happens? You miss a day. You forget in a moment of weakness one rule that you were supposed to keep. What happens to you who are like this in that moment. You become wrecked with guilt. People compliment you, but it doesn't feel the same anymore, does it? Instead of that usual feeling of pride, you become more and more into the despair of feeling like a hypocrite. And so what do you do then? You fake it even more. You double down. And what is all of this revealing all of a sudden? Uh, you want credit for your holiness. You want to be praised for the fact that you have become a more holy person. And so you'll use lines demonstrating this very effectiveness of your actions that promote God's blessing. You'll say, oh, you know, I knew that I was going to have a bad day today because I didn't pray today. Or perhaps worse, 
Oh, I knew I was going to have a great day today because I read my Bible and did all my things and God was going to bless me because I did it. Do you see what this statement alone entails? Both of them root the power of God's grace in your goodness. And it ceases to be grace at all. The word of God and prayer, yes, are very rightfully are a means of grace. But as Dr. Brian Chappell says in his book, A Holiness by Grace, the word of God and prayer are a means of grace, but they aren't a means to grace. Now, what does he mean by that? It means that you can't action your way into manipulating God's blessing. That isn't holiness. That's legalism. That's the Galatian heresy. And Paul rightly rebukes the Galatians and us when we think this way. He says, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? That's pretending that holiness could be earned apart from the Holy Spirit. It's not believing in God. It's believing in yourself. And trust me, it will lead to despair. So when we consider the cost of Christ's precious blood, whose perfect holy life covers us, we are rightfully pulled back into giving ourselves too much credit for our holiness or the fear that will be figured out. Considering the cost means that to be holy is to know that the cost has already been paid. And that's what takes us to our third point, that to be holy is now to not only be a child, right, not only to know the cost, but to look to Christ. Or more specifically, in verse 20, to look to the Christ who is known before the foundation of the world. Our call is to be holy and realize that Christ, from the very beginning of all things, was known to redeem you and I, to transform us into this person of holiness. See, you might not be this first person that I just talked about, the one who tries to earn their holiness. Uh, you might actually be this second person that I'm going to talk about. And this is the person the exact opposite of the one trying to earn holiness. There's an opposite danger that Peter is correcting in exhorting the church to look to Christ before he came into the world. And that opposite danger is that you might be a person who strongly believes that it is hopeless to be holy. Peter, by rem remembering that Christ has called us from eternity past, prevents us from being helpless in our journey of holiness. You see, some of us, when we look at the call to be holy, we put up this air of false humility. Oh, that could never be me. I could never be holy. I'm just going to misquote the Psalms and just say, I'm a worm and not a man. You're misquoting that verse of using it that way. Oh, I'm this worm who's incapable of anything. It's, it's better for me to just live in grace and not change anything in my life at all. After all, Jesus is in me, so why even try? Let me misquote another verse. All my strivings are filthy rags anyways, right? Every attempt at obedience is an effort tainted with sin. So resting in Christ, passively sitting on the holy sidelines will just make me wait until Jesus comes again, right? Why even try? But do you see and notice what you've done here? You've said that. You say to God some true things, but there's a hidden lie in that. Although, yes, I am united to Christ, Although, yes, you are declared holy by that measure, um, you are still stating that you haven't embraced all that God is really calling you to. You are very rightly trusting in grace, but you haven't trusted in grace enough to realize that 
God from eternity past has chosen you to be holy through the foreknowledge of Christ being sent into the world. You have been given a new name. The conditions that once shrouded you in disobedience are now the conditions that lead you to righteous acts that please the Lord. From the foundations of the world, Christ was foreknown meant this, that God didn't retroactively call you his child out of pity for you. He knew that you would be his from the beginning of time. He knew that Christ would take on flesh. He knew that Christ would suffer and die for your apathy. He knew your lack of faith, your sin. And yet, Christ would still rise from the dead and be given glory, all to break you out of the sense of helplessness in following him. You are a spirit-fueled child of God and are given the exact nature of Christ to fight against the battle of sin and to pursue godliness in a way that transforms every part of your being. You see, helplessness comes off as humble, but you are subtly making the same measure of mistakes that a legalist does. You are saying that ultimately, you don't have faith of what God is proclaiming who you really are. The theologian John Murray criticizes this line of thinking and says this, um, if we have died to sin, the believer is translated to another realm. You are no longer there. So why live as though you are? It's the opposite issue of legalism, you see. It's licentiousness. It's antinomianism. It's anti-law. What it means to be holy is realizing that looking to Christ who is holy will carry itself out in obedience to him. So for the legalist, you will stop patting yourself on the back when you get it right. And you'll give yourself grace to rest that you aren't who you finally will be yet in the new heavens and the new earth. For the licentious person, you will stop sitting passively on the sidelines and begin to realize that faith in God means that he is faithful to pull you out of your sin cycle and self-condemnation and embrace the dignity and the glory of who you are to do good works. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, the great Reformed preacher, puts it this way, if you could have this on the screen. Uh, I lose my sense of hopelessness in being holy because I can say to myself that not only am I no longer under the dominion of sin, but I am under the dominion of power that nothing can frustrate. However weak I may be, it is the power of God working in me. You see? It means that your weakness demonstrates the power of God working all the more stronger in your life. And God receives more glory because of that. The habits of holiness that you build with the Spirit's power will shape you in ways that you could never imagine. Uh, so, um, as many of you know, I, uh, prior to um, this role here at City of Hope, I served as a youth minister for about 17 years, as pastoral intern in the youth minister for about 17 years. And, um, you know, often I would have a middle schooler or a high schooler who was really wrestling with doubt enter into my office. And the refrain of the chorus that they would sing to me in that office was always the same. They would say, you know, I don't think I'm saved, Pastor Song. Um, I don't feel like I'm growing. I don't see how God is working in my life. Um, I don't feel any different. It really all feels hopeless. It feels like I've been trying for so long. Uh, how do I 
how do I understand this? And I have to remind them again and again of this reality of what the trajectory of holiness looks like. Not just for the middle school or high schooler, but for all of us as well. Um, what kind of a Christian were you five years ago? That's what I asked them. They always look at me when I ask them this question with some sort of semblance of bewilderment. You mean when I was like six? Like, what do you mean, <laughs> right? Like, what do you mean? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What kind of Christian were you back when you were six? And they were like, uh, I was a liar. I was a cheat. I was immature. Uh, good, 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 good. All right, you're able to see that. All right, good. Um, what about three years ago? Oh, gosh, three years ago. I was like nine. Like, I was in fourth grade. I was, I was a mess. What about now? Do you feel like in looking at this trajectory of God's life that God has, has molded you into something more mature, more precious, more of a child of God than we were then? And then they go, oh, I see what you're doing. All right, Jedi mind trick, pastor song, right? Whatever, right? I see what you're doing. Sometimes when we look at the trajectory of holiness in our lives, our time scope is narrowly way too small. God has been working in your life for as long as you've been a believer. And day by day, month by month, year by year, he's been working behind the scenes. Maybe as not as dramatically as you would have liked. It all could seem really boring and mundane. But then one day, you're going to wake up and you're going to realize that you are someone completely transformed by grace. Seeing how the, co the course of this everyday boring obedience, Christ is doing things in you that you wouldn't believe were possible. Sins that you struggled with decades ago are erased. Thoughts that you had in your mind that were ungodly, impure, removed. But remember, every single day is a day closer to glory. So be who you are in Christ. And that's what leads us to our final point, uh, that being holy as God is holy is to love the church of Christ. The purpose of holiness is living out who we are as children of God. It's knowing the cost and knowing Christ. But verse 22 gives us a window of yet another purpose of this holiness, that our souls are living in obedience to the truth. So in other words, holiness has more than just this sort of vertical perspective right, of us and God, right? But there's just a horizontal perspective of holiness to be called to a sincere brotherly and sisterly love, to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. In other words, one of the goals of conversion is not just simply so you can get to be in heaven to be with Christ. Uh, this is often a problem in our evangelism. Um, that we only think of it in this vertical perspective. But rather, one of the other things of when we are converted as a child of God is so we can be a picture of heaven to others by showing them Jesus to love the church. Peter uses this word here for brotherly love as Philadelphia. Not just the name of an American city or a pretty good cheesesteak, but rather the word of denoting a love for fellow brothers, believers living together in exile. Fellow believers suffering together. We need to be reminded of God's holiness together. Fellow believers knowing and reminding one another that we have salvation in Jesus' name. Because the pressures of living out holiness are immense for the people of God, isn't it? 
in Peter's day, it must have been excruciating. I mean, have you ever tried to love someone when you're completely stressed out? Right? Now imagine that you are in a position where you're facing the imminent threat of dying simply by telling others that you are a Christian. Imagine being of a social caste, exiled Gentiles, living in areas where they are faced with all kinds of religious, ethnic, and moral persecution. And now imagine that the largest superpower that the world has ever known, the Roman Empire, is descending upon you. What grounds your ability to love others when suffering encompasses all around? Peter's response here is beautiful because it speaks to everything that he has done in this text to remind us of what it means to be holy. He says, you want to know the grounding of how to love one another amidst all of this chaos? The Word of God, which has lasted throughout every generation. This is the ground. This is the root of your love for each other in the midst of horribly difficult and trying circumstances. And then he quotes Isaiah 40. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now Peter, in quoting Isaiah 40, where Isaiah was writing to exiles who were promised redemption, Right? Uh, he was, uh, Isaiah was writing to exiles that the Lord was telling them that the Lord, the everlasting God, will bring them out of the disaster of the exile. So the suffering, the displacement, the, the persecution that came from their own rebellion and their own sin, the Lord would remain, remain true and faithful to his promises because the Lord's word is eternal. The Lord's word would keep it. This word of God, so Peter's hearkening back to Isaiah. This word of God, which lasted thousands of years in the history of Israel to thousands of years to today, reminds us that the capacity to love one another with a brotherly love, to love the people of God earnestly, is rooted in the good news that Christ has never failed us. The Roman Empire fell. The Dark Ages turned to light. Nazi Germany fell. Jim Crow laws fell. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever and has made you born again to love one another in the church amidst persecution, amidst ongoing fears and worries that you have that we have lost some mythological culture war. Growing up in the church context, I have heard that the death of the church would be coming from all sorts of issues of the day. Right? In the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, oh, the death of the church will be this. Power, force, ideology, philosophy, secularism. Uh, but the, the real Christian believes this and holds on to this. The true church has remained in every generation. Why? What does Scripture say about this? They will know each other by what? by their love for one another. They will know each other in the way they care for each other. Holiness perfected is to place our faith and hope in Christ for our holiness and to seek out the love of God towards each other, how we can love each other earnestly. So in other words, church, gathering here today, this morning on Sunday morning, means that you have a responsibility, you know, not just to sing songs and hear a good message and then leave and dip. It goes beyond that. 
as Hebrews 11 writes, to consider how we can stir up one another to love and good deeds. How we share about our lives with each other, to support one another. This might mean things become inconvenient for us, church. Loving each other might become very messy, indeed. Loving each other might become very hard. But consider this. The calling for holiness, living out the calling of Christ, is to consider that the same love of Jesus that he had for us. Jesus' love was inconvenient. Jesus' love was incredibly messy. It was filled with trials and griefs. But in that love, Christ changed the world. And he has called the church to do the same. I hope now that as you see this text here in 1 Peter 13 to 25, um, you will begin to see the Kobayashi Maru differently. Not holiness in terms of impossibility, but you change the conditions through the power of the Spirit of God that is firmly working in you, that you are his child, that the cost of Christ's precious blood has covered you, that Christ knew from the beginning of time that you would be his, that when you experience the love of one another in the church, you will see this Christ is making you holy and has declared you holy. So church, Let's be who we are in Christ. Let's pray together.